Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Good morning, everyone. We're going to wrap up the month of May. So we're going to finish out May for today and tomorrow, even though it's June 1st. So let's begin with our scripture in 1 John 4, 15 to 19. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Brother Dan, take it away. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you again today. We'll begin with a a brief five-minute overview uh, for those that are only with us for the first few minutes. Yesterday, we took a closer look at the national covenant that Yahweh established with the people of Israel, and it's often referred to as the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant. We learned that the emphasis and the essence of the covenant at Sinai is a relationship of grateful obligation. And this brings us to a very critical question. What about the law? Today, we're gonna consider God's gift of the law, given in the context of grace, in the form of a covenant relationship, and how law is a good thing. Unfortunately, many Christians today think Old Testament law is boring and dull, or completely irrelevant. Even worse, many Christians think the law is a bad thing. There's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding Old Testament law. To the modern mind, the word law conjures up images of massive, intricate legal codes and a spirit of legalism. But the purpose of the law was to teach the Israelite fundamental values about what it means to live all of life in the presence of God. The law was going to impact everything that related and pertained to them. It was not merely to provide them with a handy legal reference tool. In short, the aim of the law was instructional rather than judicial. Further, Old Testament law is best understood in the covenant framework that we've been describing, like we saw yesterday. It's not an abstract system of morality that Yahweh is imposing on this people. And this lets us readers know that we must interpret the law relationally. 
as the guidelines that are governing Israel's ongoing life with her gracious God. The holy God, Yahweh, is forming and fashioning a people that will reflect his own holy character. Sometimes we can ignore tedious texts that describe in detail various instructions or laws, but these same texts give us valuable insight to the character of God, and they reveal his great concern for how he wants people to live, how he wants us to treat one another, how we should interact socially, how we should not abuse our environment, how we ought to be caring for his creation, how we ought to love our neighbors, and how we're to be a witness to a watching world. All of these things are very instructional for us today. So as heartstrong followers of Jesus, we ought to consider ourselves as living in a dynamic relationship with Yahweh, with God, rather than just one of duty. So for those that are stepping off the call after the first few minutes, I want to encourage you as you go about your day to ask yourself two, two important questions. Number one, first, am I living all of life in the presence of God. Do, do you see your life that way? Do you see that everything that you do in your life is done in the presence of God? Think about that. And secondly, do I consider God's instructions as a source of life? So not as a heavy burden or an imposition, but you see them rather as God's personal instructions and therefore are a source of life to you. So for those that need to go, God bless you today. You've been blessed. Now go and be a blessing to others. Like the last two days, I will just briefly mention some of the specific resources that I've been using to prepare the teachings. Uh, I've mentioned each morning that a great deal of what I share and how I'm even thinking and the concepts that I have come to learn and understand, I owe full credit to my Old Testament seminary professor, John Kessler, and uh, his textbook that we've been using. And I believe the notes were posted the other day uh, that include the details of that textbook, as well as the book, The Epic of Eden uh, by Sandra Richter various scholarly essays uh, included in a Bible dictionary that was also included in the notes. The one thing that I will mention today that I have not for the past and something that I've used in preparing today's is a book by the name Introduction to Biblical Interpretation. So that book along with one or two others, I'll see about trying to get those uh, posted as well. But that's by William Klein, Craig Blomberg and Robert Hubbard. Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, the third edition. And it's a really helpful resource uh, when it comes to interpreting uh, not just Old Testament passages, but, but all of scripture. It's really a, a great handy tool. We did not get to reading chapters uh, 25 and 26 yesterday. So I hope everyone had an opportunity at some point throughout the day to, uh, to read those. And we're gonna return to our chapter readings 
But first, there's one more big picture issue I would love to cover that will help, I hope, continue to provide a framework for us to, to think carefully about all these things we're reading about. Uh, so covenant was a big one. Uh, and the fourth one that I'm covering, so the first one was wrestling with troubling texts. The second one was a proper approach to reading Old Testament scripture. The third we covered yesterday was covenant. And today I would love to cover the fourth one, which is law. The subject of law in the Old Testament has drawn a vast array of interpretations. In Judaism, law is central to faith. But in Christianity, believers seem to be more negative towards it. M.J. Selman states in his article, though this more negative approach is partly due to the cultural and historical distance that separates the ancient and the modern world, the main underlying reason seems to be theological, especially the interpretation that people have of Paul which sees a fundamental separation between the law of the Old Testament and the grace of the gospel in the New Testament, end quote. Sandra Richter, in her book, she argues long and loud for the law being good. She encourages readers to think carefully of the whole context. So she takes us through it. She says the Israelites lived under the oppressive cruel social system of Egypt. They lived in an impossible situation. Richter says, and I quote, the typical Israelite slave was illiterate, certainly had no military training, had never been allowed to organize itself into anything as sophisticated as a PTA. How would such a person organize or represent a nation or write up a law code or lead troops into battle? The typical Israelite slave could do none of these things. So as Yahweh, through Moses, leads them out of that situation and brings them now to the, to the base of Sinai and is offering to them a covenant, he's graciously extending this offer of a, of a covenant relationship to his people. And he's outlining stipulations of what a covenant, their covenant will look like, something that at least they could understand. So Israel agrees and they accept. So Richter then says, these collections of law offer them a comprehensive, radically different view of human community and the social values that it will promote. So in its place in redemptive history, the law served to sketch the profile of God to a fallen race who no longer had any idea who God was or what was defined as good. How did Yahweh define good? Because of the Mosaic law, the Israelites learned that Yahweh, unlike other gods in the ancient Near East, he abhorred human sacrifice. He abhorred self-mutilation and temple prostitution. The Israelites learned that Yahweh was immune to magic and he competed with no one. He was unique and incomparable. This God was different, and what he expected of his people was different as well. This is what the Mosaic law brought into focus in Israel's world. So it was a very good thing. 
end quote from Sandra Richter. John Kessler observes that the Sinai covenant, which we remember from yesterday, is Yahweh's great suzerain vassal covenant, of which law is a key element. It's made with Israel, think of this, it's made with Israel after the deliverance from Egypt. So put another way, law is given to a people that's already been redeemed as a way of manifesting their gratitude for their deliverance that they have graciously received. Furthermore, the covenant was not forced on them, it was offered to them. This is the context in which the commandments are given. Kessler says law is not given as a way of obtaining salvation or deliverance for Israel, but it's a response to them being saved and being delivered. So to obey the law was a way of abiding in the covenant. In other words, law is not given to attain a relationship, but to maintain an existing one. To the ancient Israelite, the idea of covenant law, or better, the Hebrew word there is Torah, which is a Hebrew word whose sense is divine authoritative instruction. And it was seen as a source of life. Keeping Torah was to be an expression of heartfelt love. If you uh, have the time, I would encourage you at some point throughout the day to read Psalms 1, 19, and 119. These are called the Torah Psalms. And you will see the incredible respect, admiration, and delight that Jews have for Torah, for God's instruction. You read Psalm 119 and over and over and over and over again throughout all of its multiple verses you get this profound, uh, this sense of profound passion and love for God's instruction because it was a source of life. Yahweh's love was unconditional in the election of Israel, but the maintenance and enjoyment of the covenant was contingent upon Israel's ongoing faithfulness to the covenant and walking in Yahweh's way. Now, it's also very important to understand the role of forgiveness within the covenant. Law, this is important, law never presupposes that the human person can keep it perfectly. Israel was unable to keep the laws of the covenant perfectly, but it did not mean the covenant relationship was immediately terminated. That is why Yahweh makes provisions within the covenant for relational repair. For whenever Israel either collectively or individually sins and fails to abide by the stipulations of the law. So forgiveness is rooted in the gracious character of Yahweh. He freely chooses to forgive sin over and over again. When he chooses to remain in relationship with the, with the community, even in instances when the covenant was so profoundly violated that God was under no legal or relational obligation to remain within the covenant. This is God's grace and his patience with his people over and over and over again. But do not take God for granted. 
do not abuse his grace. Why? Because Israel broke covenant with Yahweh and eventually incurred the consequences they knew would happen for breaking it. The Sinai covenant is largely considered by most scholars and according to biblical evidence, the Sinai covenant was considered broken at the time of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. You can read 2 Kings chapter 17 and chapter 24. And of course, again, in Jeremiah 31, God's people were sent into exile. Eventually, those returning to Jerusalem after the long period of exile, they plead for a renewal of Yahweh's covenant that would be rooted in the faithfulness that he promised to Abraham. That's the basis for them pleading on God's mercy. Lord, you promised to Abraham. So based on your great chesed, based on that, would you please renew the covenant with us? Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 7 to 8 and verse 32. And then they ask, they give a solemn promise to obey Yahweh's law. This time they want to make a better effort. Ezra chapter 10, verse 3. Now, this is very important here. By the time of the first century, Jews in Jesus' day vividly remembered the exile. They never wanted that to happen again. In fact, they were still suffering from oppressive foreign rule in their own land. So for a first century Jew, keeping Torah was not being legalistic. It was an honest effort to remain lo lovingly loyal to Yahweh. Jews were making a genuine attempt with their lives to obey Torah because they did not want to make the same mistake again. John Kessler notes that some people mistakenly think that Jesus came to get rid of the law and to usher in an era of grace. But remember Jesus' own words, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. This understanding that Jesus came to get rid of the law and bring in grace, this is an incorrect reading of the conflicts over the law that appear in the Gospels and in the writings of Paul. John Kessler again notes, briefly put, the New Testament is concerned to refute the erroneous notion that law-keeping may be used to earn justification or status with God. This is the basis of Paul's arguments in Romans and in Galatians. So again, it's, it's a great misunderstanding. For those that really want to dig in deep to this entire issue, probably one of the biggest most massive monographs written on this that really started to turn the tide of the way scholars thought about it was by a Canadian scholar by the name of Ed Sanders. Most people would recognize his name on books as E.P. Sanders. And he wrote a book back in the mid 70s called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And uh, we don't have time to really get into that. It's, it's a massive monograph, as I say. But if, if that interests you, that would start the kind of that whole debate as to how we've really gotten first century Judaism wrong for a very, very long time. And so uh, I'll just leave that with you and we'll, we'll have to move on for the sake of time. So let's transition now. I think the point has been made about the goodness of law. 
So let's transition to make some comments on the chapter readings uh, from yesterday. We talked about being uh, aware of the diversity of various theological streams or traditions that flow through the Old Testament. And we noted that our first two chapters, 23 and 24, were part of a section of material that we described as Covenant Sinai Theology or Sinai Covenant Theology. Chapters 25 and 26 from yesterday, as well as chapters 27 and 28 for today, these present us with different material that we can describe as priestly theology, priestly theology. So our chapters from yesterday, excuse me, and today are part of the key texts in priestly theology. In fact, chapters 24 all the way to 31 and chapters 35 to the end of Exodus all describe parts and aspects of priestly theology. Our specific chapters have been describing specific instructions for building the tabernacle together with related institutional matters. So chapter 25 was dealing with offerings for the tabernacle for, for getting back so that they can construct it. It also talked about the Ark of the Covenant, the table of bread, and the lampstand. And then chapter 26 went into much greater detail on the tabernacle itself. Um, let's just look very briefly at chapter 25. I just want <clears throat> to excuse me, point out one verse. Because this is the purpose statement for what follows in the text, for what you read. In chapter 25, verse 8, it says, and have them. This is Yahweh now. Because in verse 1, it was Yahweh speaking to Moses. And he says, and have them. That's the people. Make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them in accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So this gives us the, the purpose statement here in the text as to why all of these instructions are being given. Yahweh wants to dwell with his people. So the main theme that we will come to learn here in priestly theology, really, it revolves around the presence of Yahweh, the holy God, who is will, wanting to dwell with Israel, God's people. So some important key ideas and understanding for, the, for us that helps us understand the way the Israelites and many of the ancient Near Eastern people viewed their world or the nature of existence even, but specifically in priestly theology, their understanding really was of two realms, the seen and the unseen. The unseen was the heavenly realm and included all the different individuals there. We don't have time to get into all of it, maybe in the Q&A portion, but basically there was the unseen realm, the heavenly realm, and the seen realm, which is the earthly realm. Generally speaking, these two realms were separate. This is how they, they viewed the world, that they were separate. And it was considered dangerous for those two worlds to intersect unless Yahweh granted permission. Now, consider this for a moment. For the ancient Israelites, the most powerful of all the unseen beings, Yahweh, is going to cross over and come to dwell on earth among his people in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, 
it is going to be like uh, the people living with, I guess to use a modern day analogy, it's like a massive nuclear reactor in the center of a small village with everyone living around it. My goodness, you want to ensure that you're going to be safe and secure. God is holy and it's powerful, but it's also dangerous when those two worlds intersect without proper mediation. And this helps us better understand why there was such a fundamental need for mediation. There was a tremendous danger of unmediated contact. And there's many passages that suggest that. We don't have time to give all the references. Exodus 33, 20, and there's passages in Judges in Isaiah and 2 Samuel. But if Yahweh is going to move down from the top of the mountain into the tabernacle in the center of his people, some very important instructions must be followed exactly. So this helps us better understand God's passion for order, for important divisions and distinctions, especially in the Israelite camp and in their tabernacle. So everything that you're reading, why all these details, why all these zones and distinctions, this is part of the reason why. In priestly theology, there's a major emphasis on holiness. And there are foundational concepts between what is holy and what is ordinary. So what gets set apart and used for special purposes and what is just simply ordinary. There's also specific attention given to the organization of space. So there's different zones. You would have read in chapter 25, most of this described. So there was essentially three zones. Zone three is considered outside of the camp. Outside of the camp in zone three was an unclean place. Zone two is within the camp, and it was considered a clean place. Zone one was considered a holy space. This is where the sanctuary and the tabernacle enclosure was at the very center in zone one. And reference there, uh, you can go back and, and read chapter 25. I believe it's in verse 8, the references there. The three divisions, these three zones, increased in gradations of holiness. Now, in zone one, there was three additional divisions made, three additional zones that also increased in holiness. So you had the outer courtyard, which was the entrance to the tent of You'll, you'll read that in chapter 27, actually, in verse 2, and also in chapter 30. But then it went from the courtyard into the holy place. And you would have read that in chapter 26, verse 33. So it goes from the courtyard to then the holy place to then the holy of holy, the most holy place. And you also read that in chapter 26. Now, within that most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. You read that in chapter 26. And it describes, actually earlier, I believe it was in chapter 25, that there was different parts. There was the body, the box of the ark. Then there was the top of the ark. There's a distinction there. You'll notice it in verse 11 and in verse 17 of chapter 25. And then you'll read in verse 18 about the cherubim that were part of that covering, part of the mercy seat. And then in verses 31 to 33 of chapter 26, you'll notice that there is a separating veil. So then that veil separates that, that inner holy of holies to the holy place, that, that second zone. And within that zone, there was three pieces of furniture. 
There was the table for bread. You would have read that and all the specifics in chapter 25. There was the altar of incense and there was the golden lampstand. I'm just looking at the time. And I think what we'll do, I do have more comments that I want to make on some of these pieces of furniture, but we'll have to go into more detail perhaps uh, tomorrow. So moving then from the ho most holy place to the holy place, we then come into the outer courtyard. And there we had two major pieces of furniture, which is the brazen altar or the altar of whole burnt offering. You'll get to that in chapter 27 today. And then there was the laver a massive basin in chapter 30, we'll get to that, that's tomorrow. So there's also specific attention in priestly theology. It's not only about zones and the organization of space, but there's also specific attention given to the organization of humanity. So for the Israelite, you'll read all about the high priest and his special garments, the breastplate, the ephod, the robe, the turban. You'll read then about the priests, and then you'll read about the Levites, and then there's everybody else. So there's these different categories, these distinctions given as humanity is organized. In Leviticus is really when you'll get into reading about all the other important key themes in priestly theology. And those major themes are sacrifices and offering, festivals and holy days, clean and unclean foods, ritual impurity and purification. And then, of course, the holiness of Yahweh is always prominent throughout, but especially in Leviticus. Once again, all of this, all of these details, all of these distinctions are necessary because God ultimately desires to dwell with his people. And he's ensuring that they follow the proper pattern so that he can reside in their midst and dwell amongst them. So in the tradition of priestly theology, what we're learning here is that it relates to a relationship of reverential awe. In Sinai covenant theology, it was about grateful obligation. In priestly theology, the main focus now is on reverential awe. Let me just take the last two minutes really quickly to describe uh, priestly theology, just to kind of give you a summary, and then perhaps we'll end on this note. This is quoting John Kessler at length. He gives a beautiful summary here. Priestly theology reflects the expression of Israel's existence before Yahweh in terms of the dwelling of Yahweh among his people. Due to the inerrant danger in contact with the holy God and a finite and sinful humanity, Yahweh's dwelling among his people is only possible through a divinely appointed system of mediation, focused on the maintenance of proper boundaries, the functioning of ritual institutions, and the fulfillment of prescribed ritual and ethical duties. This relationship is expressed through a covenant, which is given to Israel as a collective entity. It's eternal in its duration and requirements. It is unbreakable on Yahweh's part. It is grounded in the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 17. However, on the human level, it is highly conditional. Individuals and whole generations can break the covenant and can be cut off from it. But the people will never be totally destroyed or abandoned by God because he refuses to break his covenant. And you'll read that in Leviticus 26, end quote. We'll have to end there due to time. So I won't be able to get to 
the theological reflections and the theological responses and the New Testament resonances, but we can touch on that in Q&A if that interests you. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together. <laughs>